Okay, today uh, we're going to have our sermon in Genesis 49, verses 1 through 7, and the sermon is going to be entitled, The Blessing Upon Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And I want to say before we get started that I am not going to read a psalm, nor are we going to take communion on the video today. And the reason why is because we have some problems uh, that were not resolved earlier, and we're not going to have time to do it. We're a little bit behind, and uh, there's no way we can fit everything in. So I'm going to go straight into reading the sermon text for our uh, sermon of the day. Genesis 49, starting in verse number one, it says these words, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water you shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Question for you today. Is it possible... Is it possible that God wrote the gospel story in the heavens? In the first chapter of the Bible, it says these words. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. The heavenly bodies were first given as signs and then for seasons and then for days and years, according to the first page of the Bible. Throughout the Old Testament, there are references to stars, planetary alignments, and other heavenly occurrences which point to prophetic signs concerning the work of God in Christ. There are also constellations which are mentioned directly in the book of Job and elsewhere in the Bible. Therefore, the formation of clusters of stars into pictures is something acknowledged by God in his own word. He uses them, like the seasons of the year, to point to his redemptive work. I'd like to uh, bring in right now uh, E.W. Bollinger's book, which is called The Witness of the Stars. I've cited it many times in these Genesis sermons, a couple other books that he's done as well. And in there, he details how the constellations are in fact representative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not astrology. It is understanding the gospel message in a different way, just as God does in many other avenues. So uh, if you have any questions about these sermons, and if they kind of trouble you, you think I'm uh, going off on a tangent, I shouldn't be, I would ask you to go online. You can read it right online and read The Witness of the Stars by E.W. Bollinger. And I think it'll allay any uh, uh, fears or trepidations that you may have about this particular issue. God uses agriculture. He uses geology and even points on the compass to show us that he is in control of history and what he is doing in history. He also uses the stars to show us what he is doing and what he will do in the world. It is not coincidence by any stretch of the imagination that groups of people from all over the world see the exact same constellations and merely use different names for them. And with the corruption of sin, they, like all of other gods, other signs, are misused for idolatry rather than for what he intended. But the Bible shows us that they are there, that they are there for signs, and those signs will in fact reveal Christ. Our text verse today comes from Job chapter 38. <clears throat> In these two verses, he quotes four different constellations. 
Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out Mazarot in its season or can you guide the bear with its cubs? In chapter 49 of Genesis, Jacob will bless his sons and pronounce prophetic utterances over them. Like all Bible prophecy, there are multi-levels to be derived from such things. There is the immediate, present application, and there are applications which expand out to the most distant future of redemptive history. But in Jacob's words, there is also a prophetic parallel to the 12 constellations which swirl about our heads in the night sky. God has, in fact, written his testimony concerning Jesus Christ there. These are not to be viewed as astrologers do, which is telling us how to discern matters for our lives. Rather, they are to be viewed as God intends, which is how to discern matters of redemptive history as revealed in Jesus Christ. And there is a vast difference between the two. Astrology is forbidden in the Bible, just as is worshiping the seasons through fertility rituals. But God ordained that the work of his son would be revealed in the skies, in the changing of the seasons, and even in metaphors about rocks, water, grain, and the like. So let's be careful to never deviate from fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ. If we do this, we will be sound in our observance of what God has placed around us in the world for us to see as it points to him. The place where we go to find out what is right and what is wrong is the Bible. It is his superior word. And so let's go there now and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three individual thoughts for you today. The first is Jacob's final blessing. This is verses one and two. Verse one begins with, and Jacob called his sons and said, Jacob the man is now going to pronounce his prophetic blessing upon his 12 sons. In this chapter, the name Jacob will be used five times and the name Israel will be used five times. In this, there is the natural and there is the spiritual. Jacob, the man of flesh and bones and Israel, the people who strive with their God. Using the names this way is known as synonymous parallelism. There's an equivalent aspect to using the names, and at the same time, there is a distinction. The man is Jacob, and the man is Israel. But there is also the race of people who descend from the man. Something similar is seen throughout all of the Bible concerning the name of God. In the Old Testament, there is the word Elohim, or God. It's known as a majestic plural. And there is the word Jehovah, or as we translate it mostly, L-O-R-D, all in capitals. In the New Testament, there is God, which is the Greek word theos, and then there is Jesus. In both Testaments, they form a synonymous parallel. Elohim, or God, is the eternal God who is before his creation, and he's related to the entire scope and substance of the universe that he created. And then there is Jehovah and Jesus. Jehovah is the self-existing God of uh, Exodus 3.14. I am who I am. He is prior to the intelligent beings that he created, and he has a special relationship to them. Jesus in the New Testament is the word of God, who is likewise related to the sentient man whom he created. Both Jehovah and Jesus relate to the moral attributes and the conduct of their creatures. Both are the monitors of their covenants, and both are the ones who are faithful to their word and the keeping of their promises. If we can remember this about Jacob and Israel, about God and Jehovah of the Old Testament and God and Jesus in the New Testament, 
then we can understand more readily what God is showing us as the Bible unfolds before us. Verse 1 does continue. Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Jacob has called together his seed in order to pronounce this prophecy, which is under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we know that this is so because it was not actually recorded until the time of Moses. The substance may have been remembered, but the words were penned at Mount Sinai along with all of the other law which was received at that time. In this verse, Jacob uses the term Baharit Hayamim, at the end of days. This is the very first of 16 times that this term is going to be used in the Bible, and there's a lot of debate by scholars over what it means exactly. But I will say that it certainly covers the total time of Israel, from the Exodus all the way through until the millennial kingdom of, uh, and the reign of Jesus Christ. All of the pictures that we've seen in the lives of Jacob and Joseph include things which have not yet happened. They are future to us even now. And so it would be unreasonable for us to think it meant anything other than the entire scope of the history of Israel, even to the end of human existence as we currently know it. Despite portions of the prophecies extending beyond our time, many of them were per precisely fulfilled in Israel's later history, which led up to the time of Jesus Christ. And some of the words he will speak will be of the coming Messiah himself. He'll do this through all of these pronouncements upon all 12 sons, and they are so exact, and they are so precise that it leaves no room for us to expect any other than the one who is to come. The word leads to Jesus and to no other person. In John chapter 6, some of his disciples were turning away from him, and Jesus asked the 12, do you also want to go away? Simon Peter's response gives exactly what can be discerned from the coming verses of Jacob's prophecy. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. If the words which Jacob speaks here point to the work of Jesus, then they are the eternal words of God. And in him then must be the words of eternal life. One cannot escape the beauty of the structure of the Bible, which gives us such a sure and strong foundation in our life. And I tell you what, people love to diminish the Bible. This past week, and I hate to do it, but I had to let a couple people go from my Facebook friend list. Why? They're Christians. Very rarely do I defriend anybody else, but Christians get belligerent about the Bible. They diminish its power. They diminish its authority. They take verses out of context, and when you correct them with the proper context, they get angry and they just start using ad hominem tax attacks against you. And they start saying, you know, you're some type of a Bible thumper. Well, I love this book. God has given us this book for a reason. And it's to show us how to properly run our lives, how to act in a church setting and how to act in front of other people and what we should and should not do. And they don't want to face that. They say they've loved Jesus, but they deny the power of the word. To me, the two are inseparable. I don't know how people can get up in the morning without loving and cherishing their word and following through with it every single day, reading it, thinking on it, going to bed and reading it again and thinking on it at night. Don't ever diminish the power of God's superior word. It is beautiful. Our second verse today, gather together and hear you sons of Jacob and listen to Israel, your father. Again, the words gather together are used by Jacob. He just did that in the first verse, gather together, and I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. In the second verse, he says, gather together and hear you sons of Jacob and listen to Israel, your father. 
Jacob is Israel. This is repeated to show the elevation of his mind from the earthly Jacob to the spiritual Israel as he prepares to give his divinely inspired oracle. It is calling to their attention the importance of what is about to be uttered to them. In the last verse, he was Jacob, the dying man, who is calling his earthly sons. Now they are the earthly sons of the father, who is to prophesy by the spirit. They are the sons of Jacob, and he is Israel, their father, who is the father of Israel, the people. It is this type of synonymous parallelism which the pages of the Bible will continue with, even through the book of Revelation. Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Let me know. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. All scripture tells us that this is certainly so. You are our Lord, and we shall follow you wherever you go. Likewise, we will go as well. Those things that you direct are the things which we shall do. The ancient words of God about you, they do tell. Our second thought today, the blessing upon Reuben. This is verses three and four. Now, without a detailed examination of every single line of his pronouncements upon his sons, we will miss much more than we would ever see. And because of this, the blessings of the sons of Israel are actually going to be divided into five full weeks of sermons. Every single word that Jacob utters is a part of a heavenly drama, which is being worked out in a group of people born to this man. The first son to be born to Jacob, Reuben, was to his wife, Leah. His birth is recorded in Genesis chapter 29. It says there, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Verse three, Reuben, you are my firstborn. Because he was the firstborn, he should have been blessed with the rights of a firstborn. They are the three portions of honor in this particular dispensation, the birthright, the priesthood, and the kingdom. Instead of a one-twelfth portion, he should have received two-thirteenths, but that went to Joseph. Instead of receiving the priesthood, that went to Levi. And instead of receiving the kingship, that went to Judah. This verse points to both Israel and to Jesus. Israel is called the Lord's firstborn in Exodus 4, verse 22. Jesus is called the firstborn over creation in Colossians 1, verse 15. There is a difference, though. Israel was the firstborn according to adoption and is after creation. Jesus is God's son within the Godhead, and he is prior to and above his creation. Verse 3 continues, my might and the beginning of my strength. This phrase is intended to convey the thought of procreation. A man's strength is found in his seed as much as it is in his own arms or his own legs. As a man tires, the seed of the man continues the strength of the man and of the family. Every year, for example, my father will ask me to come and to visit him up in Massachusetts for a week. And I go, and it is never, never a vacation. Because he's older, he doesn't have the strength anymore to drop the trees and to cut up the logs and then to chop the wood. He doesn't have the footing to climb the ladder and to clean the gutters or to fix the vents on the top of the roof. And I've found that as I'm getting older, my strength is also fading. Someday it would be hoped, although I won't be too positive about it, that my own children will come and help with the things that we can't do for ourselves anymore. 
This was the hope and the expectation of Reuben as he came from the womb of his mother. This verse again points to Jesus, who is the incarnate word of God, fully God and fully man. Verse 3 continues, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. The word excellency here is from an early English usage, and it means much less that which is noble and more that which is first or preeminent. We think nowadays excellence is noble, no, being something noble, but that's not what it's meaning there. This was the state of Reuben. He was the firstborn, and he should have been in the superior position over his brothers. But as Israel continues, this right and this honor will be forever removed from his line. Again, this prophecy points to Jesus, whose preeminence is described in detail in Colossians chapter 1. I'm not going to read it, but Colossians 1, 15 through 18, you read that and you'll see what I'm talking about. Verse 4, unstable as water, you shall not excel. This is known as an unfinished sentence. In the Hebrew, it just drops off and it contains a metaphor within it. It literally reads, pachaz chamayim, or boiling over like water. There's a double meaning here. The first is that Reuben was unstable in how he conducted himself. It was as if he was a foaming torrent, like a pouring waterfall that simply could not be controlled. At the same time, it's an allusion to the act that he committed in the past against his father, and which will be described in just a moment. What he did was a form of debauchery, which Israel now brings to memory in front of all of the brothers. And because of what he did, he is told he will no longer excel. In his bubbling over with pride, he will no longer have anything of note to be proud of. Because of his unstable ways, there would continue to be nothing stable within his clan. Those things that should have been his will disappear into the air, just as, you know, water frosts off and bubbles off into the atmosphere. And sure enough, nothing of superiority or excellence is noted concerning Reuben for all of the rest of the Bible. No judge, no prophet, no prince, nor any person of renown will come from him. And yet at the same time, two of the Bible's most noted bad men, Dathan and Abiram, who come against Moses during the time in the wilderness, are going to descend from Reuben. During the census, which will be taken when Israel leaves Egypt at the Exodus, the tribe of Reuben will not even be a third of the size of the tribes of Judah, Joseph, or Dan. And when the exile of the northern kingdom comes, Reuben will be one of the very first tribes carried off to the nations. Because of one disgraceful act that occurred 40 years earlier, Jacob is now in a position to remind him and to punish him for what he did. It was a permanent mark upon him and his family, and it would never heal. Now Jacob specifically mentions the act. Verse 4 continues, But you, because you went up to your father's bed. The incident is described in Genesis 35, verse 22. There it says these words, And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and 2, there's a very similar incident which occurred in Corinth. And the same attitude is mentioned by Paul that Israel speaks of concerning Reuben here. Let's read those verses. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you? For Jacob, no amount of time could ever take away the memory of such an act. And now, at the end of his life, he relays to the corporate body of Israel the severity of discipline 
deemed necessary for such an infraction, but more so because the spirit who was prophesying through him was involved. It has been recorded in the pages of the Bible for all generations of people to read and to remember. Verse 4 continues, then you defiled it. This is another unfinished sentence. It literally reads, then you defiled. It is inserted by the translators. The verb is used in the complete sense here. It is indicating that what Reuben did was to violate something which should have been considered sacred. There could be no excuse of any kind for what this guy did. Verse 4 continues, he went up to my couch. Jacob's words are Yetsui Allah. Literally, my couch, he ascends. In the order of his words and in the changing of them from the second to the third person, Israel is expressing the immensity of the abomination which the act represents. In the very last words ever uttered to his oldest son, he uses the third person as if he weren't even in his presence any longer. The disgust of the action was unforgivable in the eyes of Jacob. Later, Reuben and his tribe would be separated from the land of Canaan by the Jordan River. Their inheritance would remain to the east. Other than one small successful campaign in battle, there is nothing of any note of any achievement in Reuben at all. And in the song of Deborah, which is a great song of achievement and praise, Reuben is noted not for heroics, but for their apathy. However, even in this sad prophecy, the fact is that Reuben has been blessed, even if in a shameful way. He remained an inheritor of a portion of the promised land and a part of the covenant community. As is seen throughout the Bible, God's grace radiates even through the wickedness of man. In the witness of the stars of heaven that God set in place, Reuben is represented by the constellation that we call in English Aquarius. Jacob said he was unstable as waters. Aquarius is represented by a man pouring out waters from an urn. This constellation points directly to the Messiah mentioned in the book of Numbers. He shall pour water from buckets, from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agog, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Later in the book of Isaiah, we see a clearer picture of the coming Messiah, represented by the blessing upon Reuben. It says there, Yet hear now, O Jacob my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you and formed you in the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob my servant, and you Jeshurun whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. In Christ, we see the picture actually fulfilled in John 7, verses 37 and 38. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This will be realized in its fullness in the heavenly Jerusalem, as noted in the book of Revelation. There in Revelation 21, these beautiful words, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. The prophecy ultimately points to the man, Jesus Christ, who poured out his life that he may pour out on us every spiritual blessing. He has removed the curse, opened the gates of paradise, and will pour out an eternal endless stream of life-giving waters for us to drink. The prophecy points to Jesus.
If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is true for the soul who has Christ as his head. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. This grace I will send. If you call on me, I will respond. I will lead you in the path of righteousness. For my name's sake, I will do these things. For all eternity, your soul, I will bless. Our third thought today, the blessing upon Simeon and Levi. This is verses 5 through 7. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. The next two sons of Israel are blessed together. They were also born to Leah, and their births are recorded in Genesis 29 as follows. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. Of all of the sons to be blessed by Israel, you got to wonder why, only Simeon and Levi are united in a single blessing rather than individually. They are sons of the same mother and workers together in the evil deed of killing an entire city of men because of their actions. Now, Jacob goes on. Verse 5 continues. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Rather than acting in the manner of shepherds, they put aside their staffs and picked up swords to commit a horrendous deed. The account is recorded in Genesis 34. It says there, Now it came to pass on the third day, when they were in pain, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. In this sentence, there's a very unusual word here, which is translated as dwelling place. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. It's only used one time in the Bible, and the word is mechera. The term dwelling places, or the old King James Version says habitations, is not correct. Translating it this way would require the preposition in before that word, and it's not in the Hebrew. Most translators call it a sword from the Greek word machera, which is a knife. Israel's on a trade route between Egypt and Greece, and these would have been a very common commodity sold by the Greeks. It also could be a pun on another word as well the word macher, which means councils or agreements. And this fits much, much better with what happened because the brothers made an agreement with the people of Shechem to circumcise them so that they could marry into the family. But after circumcising, they killed them. It is then a pun on the words sword and agreement in their one action. And because of what they did by killing a whole city with the sword, Jacob removed them from the positions of honor that should have followed Reuben's rejection. Remembering that Israel was under the influence of the Spirit, it is God who likewise looked with disfavor upon their actions. And so the prophecy continues. Verse 6, Let not my soul enter their counsel. This verse shows us here certainly that the previous verse meant agreement, not habitations. It is forming a parallel between the secret council to kill the people of Shechem and that Israel should not enter into their council. Because of one action, the second action should not take place. The word for council here, it's a very unusual word and it's kind of fun, so I want to tell you about it. It's the word sod. It's a little carpet or a cushion that people would sit on. So you wonder, how can you translate that 
as counsel. Well, the reason why is for two people to sit on the same little carpet or cushion would indicate friendship and intimacy. Israel is saying that such intimacy was not recommended with these two sons of his. Verse 6 continues, Let not my honor be united to their assembly. First, he said, let not my soul enter their counsel. The soul is the true self of a person. It's what animates us as human beings. Now he repeats himself, but he heightens the meaning. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. The honor, or chavod, is what makes a man glorious. It is what gives him dignity, self-worth, and honor before God and man. Such things could only be degraded by joining with them in the congregation. We can refer to the same man we mentioned earlier from 1 Corinthians 5 to see what Paul recommends in, an, in this particular instance. Now think of what Jacob has just said about his sons. Don't enter their counsels. And think of what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 5. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. It is a word for all of us from both testaments that we are to hold sexual immorality in contempt and we are not to associate with those who are called brothers but who are perverse in their actions like Simeon and Levi. And Paul, like Jacob, understood and spoke by the Spirit to warn us of this. Verse 6 continues, For in their anger they slew a man. Well, this goes back to Genesis 34 and the killing of the people of Shechem. It is speaking specifically about the killing of Shechem, the son of Hamor, the one who defiled their sister. But it's also referring to the whole town. The singular word is being used for the whole. Verse 6 continues, And in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. This is the second half of the parallel thought, but the Hebrew here, I want you to understand, is very, very difficult to understand. Three different translations prevail here. The first, I'll give from the NIV. It says, they hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Very similar to the New King James Version. The King James Version says, they in their self-will digged down a wall. doesn't really seem to make any sense. It's like they attacked the city through the wall or something. The third is from Young's literal translation. They in their self-will eradicated a prince. Because the verse is used in parallel, as all of these verses with Simeon and Levi are, the last is probably right. They killed a man, they eradicated a prince. Remember that Shechem was a prince of the king who was uh, Hamor. Okay, so they killed a man, they eradicated a prince. It was a willful, self-pleasing act which Jacob is condemning as unacceptable in his eyes. It caused him stress and it caused him trouble that he never forget, forgot after all of those years. Verse 7 continues, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. In this here, Jacob is careful to do what? He curses their emotions, but not the sons. Even in his condemnation of their actions, he's still granting them the blessing of the covenant people for their future. In this is another set of parallel verses as he cries out against their fierce anger. It is a destructor which can only cause destruction. Paul instructs us in the New Testament to be angry and do not sin. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Verse 7 continues, and their wrath, for it is cruel. Throughout the Bible, there is a place for wrath. 
it is the obvious result of offense. But wrath is to be tempered and appropriate to the situation. In the case of these two brothers, they allowed their wrath to make a mockery of justice. Again, Solomon advises on this matter. He says, he who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. Well, I can be very impulsive and I can get angry very quickly. And that's something that I have to temper. Because if you do that, as Solomon wisely says, you end up exalting folly. That's what happens. People see you fighting in the street with somebody, even if you didn't start it. It doesn't do anything but diminish you in their eyes. You got to be careful how you let your anger out. But there is a place for wrath in the Bible. Simeon and Levi allowed their anger to take hold of themselves, and it cost them a prominent blessing from their father. Instead, in their blessing will come a prophetic rebuke concerning the generations which follow and which conclude the parallel verses which are spoken to these two sons. Verse 7 finishes with these words, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. These words are literally fulfilled in the Old Testament. The two names, Jacob and Israel, are used to show the certainty of the prophecy. The descendant people would be divided and their unified tribes would be scattered among the other tribes. And there will be a marked difference between the destiny of these two boys. Levi will ascend to the priesthood and he's actually going to be given the highest blessing by Moses when he dies. Simeon is going to be reduced to the smallest of the 12 tribes. They will become so insignificant that they will be passed over for any blessing at all by Moses. Levi is going to be divided into 48 priestly cities which are scattered all around Israel and Simeon will be incorporated into the land of Judah. They will be sprinkled in little pockets in their territory, taking over 15 small cities. Eventually, they will become absorbed into the greater tribe of Judah. In Numbers 25, during the time in the wilderness before entering the promised land, Simeon will be noted for a bad guy named Zimri, who's going to fall into idolatry and sexual immorality. On the other hand, you've got Levi, who's going to be noted for a man named Phinehas, who will defend the honor of the Lord against that same idolatry, and he will kill Zimri in his zeal for the Lord. There is a contrast between these two, and yet there is a confirmation of this prophecy in them as well. And in them is seen the, in the witness of the stars the second constellation, that of Gemini, or the twins. In Hebrew, the term literally means twins. Da'om is the name of the uh, constellation. It is not coincidence that Israel blessed these two together and all of the other sons separately. They are the united brethren of the stars. These picture Christ in his incarnation. He's the God-man in his twofold work, that of suffering and that of glory. It also shows us his two comings, first in humiliation and then in triumph. In the constellation, there are two figures named Apollo and Hercules. In the head of one is the star Apollo, which means judge or ruler. And within the head of the other is the star called Hercules, which means who comes to labor or to suffer. In his left foot is another star called Al-Hanah, which means hurt or wounded. All of that, all of that points to Christ. They form a beautiful picture of Christ's work. As E.W. Bullinger says, here, the two great primeval truths are presented in two persons, for the two natures were one person, God and man in one Christ. As man, suffering for our redemption. As God, glorified for our complete salvation and final triumph. 
In the hand of one of the twins is a palm branch. Some descriptions or depictions will show a club, but either way, whether it's a palm branch or whether it's a club, it's hanging down in repose. It is a state of rest and peace after victory. This branch is referred to in Isaiah chapter 11. Let me read you this passage. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch, that's what it's talking about, shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The word Isaiah uses in that passage for branch is the word netzer. It is believed to be where the term Nazarene comes from. Thus again, we see in the stars the second of 12 constellations, which are a testimony to the work of God in Christ. This constellation is actually mentioned again in the book of uh, Acts, where Luke records this. He says there, after three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island. The word is Dioscurois, the two brothers. It's also called in the NIV Castor and Pollux. So you can see different cultures have used different names for these constellations, but throughout the world, they're all the same constellations. These three are the first blessings upon the sons of Israel. They point to the future history of the people, and they also point to the work of God in Christ both in the Bible and also in the stars as well. Time and time again, God reveals his son to us in an attempt to wake us up, to get us out of our sleep, and to call on him. Without Christ, I got to tell you what, there is absolutely no purpose to life and there is no ultimate point in our existence. But in him, there is eternal hope and there is the hope of glory in the presence of God the stars themselves testify to the great work of God in Jesus Christ. Now, my question for you today is, do you know this wonderful Lord who came to the earth to reunite us to his Father and whose testimony is actually written in the stars? If not, please give me just another moment to explain how you too can be forgiven and free through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that all have sinned. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And because of that sin in us, we are separated from God. The wages of sin is death. We died spiritually the moment we sinned, and that is inherited through all people from that moment. Adam did it, and we're all in Adam. But we also die physically because of the sin in our lives. And if we don't get that spiritual problem corrected before the physical death comes, we will be separated from God for all eternity. But God gives us the wonderful words of release. He says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What we do is we ask him to forgive us and to take our, our sin debt upon himself. And that's what the cross was for. He died in our place. We can move from our first father, Adam, to our true Lord, Jesus, by calling on Jesus and simply asking by faith to do that. The Bible says so. It says there that if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. So just reach out today. Lord, I can't save myself You've written the testimony of your son and the stars. You, you've done all of these things throughout the pages of your word, leading me to him. Don't let me be hard anymore. Soften my heart. I call on Jesus to forgive me. 
And if you do that, you will be saved, eternally saved. You will never lose it. We all mess up after we come to the Lord, but he is faithful and he is patient with us because we are his sons by adoption through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Our closing verse today comes from Psalm 147. It says there, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds and counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. If you think of the billions of galaxies that are out there and the billions of stars in each galaxy and God calls every one of them by name, how much more do you think he knows you intimately and wants to fellowship with you through his son, Jesus Christ? Next week, we come into five really wonderful verses. It's Genesis 49, 8 through 12, and it's entitled The Blessing Upon Judah. Jesus descends from Judah, so it'll be exciting, won't it? It'll be our 124th Genesis sermon. And I will tell you this as I do each week. I want you to listen to the words and think on them. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. All right. Our poem today is entitled The Blessing Upon Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days, the days ahead. I will now utter my prophetic view. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Please draw near. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let my soul not enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man. In their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Jacob blessed his sons as the spirit upon him rested, his words a prophecy of things ahead. And the words have proven true, though tested, and they confirm the message which is in the skies, which in the skies is spread. There is a message of hope for fallen man, and it is found in the giving of God's Son to us. All of creation, as well as the Bible, in your hand, tells of the glorious work of Jesus. Open your heart and receive the gifts so blessed. Call on the Lord Jesus and be saved from sin. And in the purest garments you will be dressed, found free from guilt and covered by him. Thank you, O God, for this blessed hope given to us. Thank you, O God, for our glorious Lord, Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to look into these prophecies of Jacob upon his sons, to see grace and mercy even in the time of his disappointment in his own sons. And if he's a fallen man, how much more gracious and merciful are you when you put your hand upon us and give us the blessing that we deserve? We look forward to being united with you for all eternity because of Jesus. And we now can look out in the sky in a different way, not in hopes of something for us, but in seeing the marvel and the majesty of Jesus Christ revealed in these, the placement of these stars that you have put out there. It really is a wonderful testimony, just as the Bible, your superior word is. We thank you for that. And Lord, I pray for each person here today that you would bless them and take good care of them. Lead them in paths of righteousness for your name's sake and help them to have a great week and be blessed and to uh, hopefully come again to worship with us next Sunday. We love you, O God. We praise you. We exalt you. And we do so in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.